Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or wherever you may be amongst the listenership and viewership of this year's 30th annual Arab-US uh, Policymakers uh, Conference. We're pleased and proud to have been able to uh, go this far uh, with the support of uh, friends and allies and others who are aligned with what the National Council uh, seeks to accomplish. This particular session promises to be one of the liveliest because of the individuals <clears throat> uh, who will comprise the panels uh, of spokespeople uh, who are long household names in the region and beyond uh, because of the extent and the nature and the background and the context of their professional careers. <clears throat> we are starting with the chairperson, uh, Richard Kaplan, who's a member of the National Council's International Advisory Board. Uh, he can be likened in a way to the Marco Polo of uh, uh, print and broadcast uh, media news uh, networks. He's been affiliated, associated as executive producer of CBS, ABC, CNN, MSNBC, uh, and has uh, worked with such luminaries as Walter Cronkite, Katie Kurek, Diane uh, Sawyer, Ted Koppel, and Peter, Peter Jennings. Um, I will turn the floor over to uh, Richard Kaplan. Uh, we're honored to have him uh, now for the second year in succession to play a role by bringing together these extraordinarily uh, experienced personally and professional media personalities. More than that, they're scholars, they're analysts, they're educators. Richard Kaplan. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Um, in fact, let me begin by thanking the National Council um, on U.S. Arab Relations, and especially you, Dr. Anthony, and our, our founder. And to Pat Mancino, uh, thank you as well for this invitation, and to Roland Robinson for all of his help. Um, mm -hmm. We hope we have a very spirited hour for you. Um, I pray that all of you who are joining us virtually are in good health and that next year COVID, if COVID in, uh, 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 goes along with us, we can meet in person because it's much easier to do this when we're all looking at each other in the same room. Mm -hmm. And it's been our practice every time we meet, we begin this session with this just a simple, what now? Um, Arab-U.S. relationships, as you know, as you all know, are complex and forever changing and are greatly affected by any change in the world order. So while ultimately our focus must include the lands of the Middle East to Persia to Asia and all the points in between, as is always said at meetings like these, this is a unique moment in our history. It's the first time in decades that I can remember having a period where the United States is not involved in a, officially in a land war uh, in the Middle East. And we, um, and, and while it's not to say we're not involved in all of the intrigues and, and, and the goings on in the region, um, we see evidence now of every state's ability, frankly, to conduct its own wars anytime they, they need, they see fit. And, and it's a much more dangerous time, I think, than ever before. Um, questions like, what is Iran up to? 
will the nuclear treaty survive? What is going to happen in Saudi Arabia and Iraq, Afghanistan, Jordan, Israel? Uh, will the United States stay engaged? And this is where we're going to begin. Will the United States stay deeply engaged or will it be distracted by a troubling relationship with, with China or a more threatening one, even with Russia? The list is long and the number of questions we have to consider is even longer. So joining me is a very distinguished panel of journalists, educators, and experts who have diplomatic experience and expertise in all things Middle East. I'm gonna introduce our guests as we come to them and all of you are invited to send in questions um, as the conversation continues. If you wanna send in questions, please send them to questions at ncusar.org. That's questions at ncusar.org. And we're gonna to try to include them in our conversation. So let me begin by going to Dr. Abdur, Abdurrahim Fakira, who is the Washington Bureau Chief for Al Jazeera. And he's the host of MIN, uh, which is one of the most successful uh, programs, information programs in the Middle East. Um, they take a look at the, an in-depth analysis of US affairs and their impact on North Africa. And I'm sure you probably caught him as he's also a commentator occasionally on Face the Nation, CNN, and NPR. Um, so <clears throat> Dr. Fakara, or Mr. Fakara, Dr. Fakara, now that we see the United States seemingly mesmerized by the, and, and, and co-opted almost by the situation with China, and we have this continuing situation with Russia. Um, do you see us, do you see the Biden administration pulling back from paying as much attention as it has in the past in the Middle East? What do you see the future there? Uh, uh, Rick, uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I do have a, a, a PhD, but please make it easier. You can just call me Abed, A-B-E-D, if you like. And uh, let me also um, start by thanking the National Council on uh, Arab Relations. And since Dr. Anthony opened the door of serious levity by uh, uh, metaphorizing you into Marco Polo, let me also uh, greet him, say thank you. Hollywood has its Duke, John Wayne. Uh, we in DC, we have our own Duke, uh, Duke Anthony. Um, <laughs> John Wayne has a gun and bullets. Dr. Anthony has brains, and we're very grateful for, for that. To your uh, uh, question, uh, uh, Rick, let me just start with a, a, a general statement about the Middle East. Um, I, I'm not a historian. Uh, I'm primarily a journalist, uh, an Arab journalist from Washington, D.C., who uh, has a passion for um, U.S. relations with uh, the, 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 the Arab world with the Middle East, uh, whether it's Arab or, or, or otherwise. Uh, so let me say this about the region. Long before the US um, got involved in the Middle East, long before the US actually existed as a, as a, as a country, many, 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 many centuries ago, uh, the Middle East has always been a focal point of attention because it has always been, as we know, it's a fact of 
geography at the intersection of different routes, whether they are trade routes or influence routes, uh, um, uh, the, the three monotheistic uh, religions uh, um, have, you know, their cradle there in, in, the, in the Middle East. So regardless of empires and global powers, the Middle East has always been what it is today. It's always been an important part of the, the world. And whether it has been uh, controlled by its indigenous uh, civilizations or by civilizations foreign to the region, it has always been uh, uh, important. And you can go through the world powers and empires, beginning with the Roman Empire, even long before the Roman Empire, but begin, talk about the Roman Empire, talk about the British Empire, talk about the, the Ottoman Empire, talk about American, uh, uh, current American power. That place has always been a particular uh, place of uh, uh, interest to uh, human history. I do not see how that could uh, uh, change fundamentally uh, now that uh, the U.S. is, or that President Biden is talking about China as being the uh, primary uh, concern of the United States moving forward, especially now that uh, the U.S. has uh, withdrawn from uh, Afghanistan. Obviously, you know, I hear, I personally hear mutterings uh, in various Middle Eastern countries, and these mutterings are questions about you know, the extent to which the U.S. will stay committed to the Middle East now that it's trying to focus more on the, the challenges of uh, China. The U.S. Um, is unique in the sense that it has had relations with the Gulf at one extremity of the uh, Middle East, of the Arab world, um, and it has had a long um, uh, an ongoing relationship with the other extremity of the Arab world. Um, Morocco was the first country to recognize the independence of the United States. The U.S. fought its first war as an independent country from the British crown off the uh, coast of uh, Libya. And, you know, there are many, many examples uh, that seem to indicate that uh, the nature of the attention or the degree of the attention that the U.S. may be paying to this part of the world uh, moving forward may change, but it will not fundamentally uh, uh, alter its, uh, 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 its, uh, its nature, whether you're talking about the economy, whether you're talking about security arrangements, um, whether you're talking about other uh, 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 spheres of life, even in terms of vaccines uh, um, and helping the countries of the region deal with the uh, um, COVID, uh, uh, COVID problem. So in short, um, obviously the US is bound to continue paying attention to the Middle East because we see uh, obviously China um, uh, increasingly interested in the region. We see Russia also uh, increasingly interested in different parts of the Middle East and uh, North Africa. So only if only to counter the Russian and uh, Chinese uh, interest in the region, the U.S. has to uh, uh, stay uh, uh, focused uh, in terms of its commitment to 
the, the, the region. But even without China, even without the threats uh, of competition from the Chinese and uh, the, the, the Russians, for example, and there are others such as the Indians, for example, the US um, will, in my estimation, continue to be interested in, in the region. Um, and that interest is per se uh, uh, to, to start with because of you know, these long-standing uh, relations with the, with the region. Uh, just one more thought, if I, if I may uh, uh, um, add one more thought to this. You know, it seems to me that the U.S. as a as a political power, as a political structure, came um, from the womb of Europe. Um, um, the, the 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 British, the, the the French, and and so on. Whether you're talking about politically or philosophically, when you look at the U.S. Constitution and what the the, the French influences had to to do with it, and therefore. It's very difficult, as long as the US continues to see a vital interest in the stability of Europe and in cooperation with Europe, it will, in my estimation, by definition, continue to see an, a, a, a vital interest in its relations with the Middle East, whether you're talking about the Gulf, whether you're talking about the Levant, or whether uh, since uh, uh, North Africa has more proximity to Europe, you're talking about U.S. relations with North Africa. They're not as strong as they are um, uh, 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 in, in terms of relations between the U.S. and the Gulf, for example, or the Gulf and Israel or the Gulf and Egypt. But they are still very, um, uh, very profound and very important uh, uh, relations for, for the U.S. with that part of uh, uh, the world sitting just across the Mediterranean from, uh, from Europe. So in short, I don't think anybody disputes that the Middle East will always be in our, on our, in, in our sights. But there are, very, there are immediate problems with China and, its, and what could blow up over Taiwan. There are, there are problems with China and its new missile systems that it's developing. And we have questions about whether they're first strike or, or not. And, and there are things that are immediate that are maybe more pressing. And we're just looking out for the next year. You know, it's a time because of the elections where the president will be looking for a place he can go for even a, a small victory because Domestically, I doubt that he'll get much done in an election year, um, and um, he'll and and it's tough to figure out it, what the president will see the benefits of really engaging in a strong way. <clears throat> excuse me, with um, with the Middle East. So let me move the conversation to uh, Khalid Amaina, who's the former editor in chief of Arab News and Saudi Gazette. And, and get down to the street level a little bit. Um, what do you think is the conversation there about you, the United States participating? We have pulled out of Afghanistan. Does that help our situation or not? Well, I think uh, just to backtrack, I don't think uh, anyone here is, again, is for cutting all relations with the United States. The impact of American policies in, even in intra-Arab relationship is very paramount. For years, 
many of the Arab states were towing the American line in the Cold War. We had the Baghdad Pact. Uh, we had other, uh, you know, pacts uh, known and unknown with the United States. But I think there's a sense that the United States and some of the policymakers in the region believe that this, the 82nd Airborne Division is always there to save us. I think the man in the street and even people in think tanks and those in power, many of them believe that the Arab states have mature, there's maturity, uh, that there is a sense that we can go on on our own. Now people, and as Dr. Fukara said, there's muttering on the street. Yes, there's a large segment, if not a majority, who believe that the United States should be there. I'm one of them. We would like to have good relations with the United States. We want friends, not masters. We want people who would help advocate a new uh, beginning, help in societal recognition of what's happening, help in building up alliances that focuses on the economy, on social affairs, on getting things done, helping this youth, helping us in our educational system. But, you know, to be viewed as just the US's, USA's favorite boy is sort of upsetting. And now people go back, and Dr. Fokara also went back, and I have great respect for him, going back to our long-term relations, things change. The images of the past are not the images of the future. There's a young generation out there. There are people who are more gung-ho. Uh, and, you know, it's sad that the Middle East, despite its brimming coffers, lacks one thing which money can't buy, and that's leadership. So for years, the inter-Arab fightings, the revolutions, the uh, changes of government and all, did not create a viable solution where we could meet and talk at par with the United States. We do not want to be client states. And, and this is it. I agree with you that the United States has an interest. We want to be treated equal. We are not an ATM machine or a gas station. That's what I always say. But there are here people who say that we can do without the United States. I say that we can do with the United States if we are treated properly, if the rights, the basic rights of our people, if there are things that are festering wounds here, like the Palestine problem, like other issues are taken care of, and America be viewed as an honest broker, then I think yes. Otherwise, there are many who scoff at the idea of U.S. being the watchman of the area. Well, let me pick up on that. <clears throat> Did the way we pulled out of Afghanistan help hurt our, our, our view, hurt what people thought of us? Was, is the United States still considered reliable? I don't think so, just considered reliable. But yes, I agree. The, the immediate pullout of Afghanistan, uh, the, the way it was done, uh, not only Afghanistan, on many other issues. There are many people who read history well enough to know what the United States did. Uh, and uh, this is not sort of criticizing or attacking the United States because it has its own interests. And as you said, Early on, China is a major issue, is a, is a big thorn in the American throat. Uh, the, the area here is comparatively peaceful in that sense. So, yes, uh, to answer, to give a direct reply, it sort of caused alarm as if this can happen to an ally, to a country where trillions were spent and you pulled out. But the question remains, and young people and others ask, 
why should we just depend on the United States? I think this is a country, 300 million people. If there's a semblance of unity among the Arabs, if they focus on joint economic trade uh, relations, education, I think we will need the United States as a, as a partner in progress and not as a policeman. I see. Um, let me bring in uh, Ms. Genevieve Genevieve Abdo, and she's a visiting fellow at the Gulf States Institute in Washington and a World Bank consultant and author of a number of books, among them, The Arab Up Uprisings, The Rebirth of the Shia-Sunni uh, Divide. Um, Ms. Abdo, the, um, let, I'm going to ask you to talk about Iraq and Iran, because the, we have a, a, even a longer relationship with them um, directly with than even with uh, Afghanistan. And, you know, they saw what went on and we've just had a, a very telling election in Iraq. Um, do you think that it's that this election was a game changer? Did it change people's attitudes about the United States? What do you think we're going to be able to do to to try to prevent Iran from totally co-opting the new Iraqi government? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Anthony, for the invitation. And I think that that Iraq, uh, the election is a is a huge um, example of how the region can change and how countries can change. And particularly relevant to the point of the younger generation. Um, everyone predicted this election would not be a game changer, but in fact it was. Um, it not only brought in um, uh, the most seats to the parliament by Muqtadr Sadr, who has not necessarily been a great friend of the United States, but he has stated since his his coalition's victory, that he wants to work with the United States, that he's very much against Iran's involvement in Iraq. And probably more importantly, the election showed that a younger generation of Iraqis really determined the, the changing dynamics. Um, independence won a large seat of votes. Um, they won 37 seats. The parties from the demonstrators also won seats. And the Iranian factions lost seats. So they are now in a much worse position with only 16 seats than they were in the last election. So we have seen a total change in the political dynamics in Iraq, largely because of the demographics, a younger generation, largely because um, this younger generation, actually they have very mixed views of the United States, which are very complicated. They are very much interested in positive U.S. engagement. Um, they're not interested in the U.S. military presence in Iraq, but they're interested if the United States and the EU can develop Iraq economically, um, can develop the infrastructure in Iraq. And so they're very, very clued into the world and to global relations, and they're not necessarily anti-American. And I think that this is something that's very important to, to, to understand. They're also not, they're also very much in favor of an inclusive political system that really hasn't been the case in Iraq. So we've seen since the 2003 invasion, 
uh, a political system that's basically been run by Shia political elites from an older generation. And this is what was voted out of office. So I think that we, it's a great opportunity for the United States to start a new relationship with Iraq. And it's also a great opportunity to shift the balance of Iranian influence in Iraq. Um, the, the people who were voted out of office, in fact, are the Shia-backed militias who are, also have political parties who have been launching targets at the United States now for several years. So the younger generation made a big point in their demonstration movement that began in 2019 that they no longer want Iranian influence in their country. And they did this at great peril. Many were assassinated. People have been kidnapped and disappeared that have still not been accounted for. Well, preci something precisely, like the, the, it's not so much the 16 seats that concerns most people. It's that Iran is, is a mischief maker, if you will. That's really understating it. Their ability to create allies using their terrorist, terrorist to, tools that concerns people. The bombings concern people. Deaths concern people, not votes as much. So um, where is that going? I mean, is, is well, this I mean, the, they won't be as in, you think that'll combat terrorism? We have seen, we have seen since the election that the violence has been used in retaliation for the results of the election. But we have also seen that the Iranian-backed militias and their associated parties have been discredited. So I think that, of course, the violence will continue against people such as the young demonstrators and their parties that won the elections and U.S. interests, but there's no support for that. So these Shia militias now are sort of operating in a vacuum. And I think that that's very important to understand that Iraqi public opinion has taken a position and it's shifted away from Iranian influence, which is very good news for the United States. You know, I think there are doubts in the Amer amongst the American public when they look at this and sometimes don't understand why there isn't a greater outpouring of anger when there's a terrorist bombing, whether it be a taxi cab or a car bomb or an IED. Um, and, and they question whether any of this really has an impact on broader relationships. I think it handicaps us in many ways. Rick? Yes. Yeah, um, yes. I'd say something about that indirectly, if I, uh, if I may, I'd like to make an indirect point, uh, uh, link into the uh, remark that you've just made. Um, but I would like to go back to the issue of young people um, that uh, uh, we've uh, heard about uh, from both uh, Mr. Khalid and from uh, uh, Genevieve. You know, the, the uh, Arab relations with the United States, Arab relations with the West in general, are full of obviously uh, complexities. That's obvious. They're also full of uh, uh, ironies and paradoxes. Uh, one of them, one of those uh, uh, ironies, is that the 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 Arabs in general have for a long time resented 
certain aspects of U.S. foreign policy, um, U.S. the way the successive U.S. relations have uh, uh, dealt with the Israeli-Palestinian issue is is one example. Um, although there's been, you know, a, a, a series of uh, stages of normalizing relations uh, with uh, with Israel, but you know there has been resentment about that in the Arab world for a long time. Another aspect of that resentment is U.S. support, whether it's perceived or real, for authoritarian uh, regimes uh, uh, trying to thwart democracy in the Middle East. And go back to 2011, uh, to the so-called Arab Spring. I mean, it was mostly about change. And it was mostly about people's passion for change and for democracy. And that's the irony of the situation, um, that you have resentment of the US on the one hand for you know a whole litany of different reasons, but you also have this uh, admiration for uh, Western uh, uh, democracy, which does not always support the de democratic drives in in the in the region. So as I said, that's one of the that's one of the the, the ironies. I, I I think you know the, the U.S. is obviously facing a lot of challenges supporting democracy. Let's just look at the challenge currently in Sudan, for example, just as one among many 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 uh, uh, examples. But the crucial um, factor moving forward uh, in terms of whether the Arab world favors China over the US, whether the Arab world will ever favor China over the, the, the US. Well, it seems to me that one of the crucial determinants is what happens here in the US as well. I mean, we have seen in recent years examples um, the, uh, 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 of, of political um, events that have shaken the uh, uh, faith of many uh, uh, an Arab in US democracy. And it seems to me that to the extent that the US political system continues to be perceived as democratic um, to one degree or, or, or another will determine um, the extent to which Arabs will continue to be uh, excited or interested uh, in working with the US, not as vassals as, as we heard from uh, Mr. Khalid at, at the outset, but as, as, uh, uh, as partners, because I'm hard put I would be hard put to it to conceive of, a, of a, a scenario in which Arabs who were very enthusiastic for democracy would uh, wish to get their democratic credentials from a country like China or, or Russia. And that, it seems to me, is one of the pillars um, of you know, this edifice that has been going on between the Arabs and the West for a long time an edifice of resentment and admiration at the same time. But as long as the US continues to project an internal image, uh, which is consistent with the Arabs view of democracy and how it's practiced in the US, I do not see how China or Russia could be a serious threat to the partnership um, that Arabs would like to have with the United States moving forward. But doesn't the problems that the administration and Americans are having just coming to any kind of agreement, we, you know, we're going to fix our highways now, but isn't the difficulties and the stalemate in Washington 
doesn't that give people pause in the Middle East when they sit there and say, who, who are we going to be able to count on? There's probably going to be a change in the leadership of the House and the Senate potentially in the next election. And then, you know, if they're looking ahead, what, what, do, they, what do they think? What do they do? I, I mean, the Arab governments, if we're talking about governments in particular here, Arab governments have always adjusted to the changes at the White House, the, change, the changes of administration. And I do not see why that would be uh, uh, different yeah, in, in the future. Whether well, Americans are having a problem with this change now. We, you know, there's a 35 or 40 percent of the country questions whether we even have the right guy in the White House based on the election. Well, um, I mean, that, that's precisely my point. My point is that if U.S. democracy continues to go through the serious trials and tribulations that it has been going through over the last two to three years, that raises serious doubt in the minds of Arabs who are enthusiastic for democracy, because there are Arabs who are not particularly interested in democracy. They do not see it as, you know, leading their countries to where those countries should be. But to the extent that there are Arabs, young Arabs in particular, who are interested in a democratic future for their, for their countries, they're going to be watching very closely the trials and tribulations of democracy in the United States. What happens here will determine, you know, uh, uh, to me, at least with some parts of the Arab world, the nature of the relationship that the U.S. will be able to maintain with that part of the world moving forward, even as it focuses on China. Mr. Almeida. If you, I could just. Oh, yes, go I ahead. If I could just uh, introduce a, a different kind of perspective. I mean, I think that one of the great um, deficiencies of US policy uh, for at least the last 20 or 30 years that was never adjusted or, or addressed by the Arab uprisings is that there's too much focus on US state relations and there's not enough focus on US relations with Arab societies. And we tend to talk, as we're doing in this conversation, about the relationship with the Arab world, with the Middle East being based totally on governments. And in fact, I think that there are many countries now, um, to, to speak about democracy, there are many countries that, uh, where societies are, are sort of uh, restrained by their autocratic governments. And so, their, whatever their desires for democracy or not, we don't really know about because their, their governments are autocratic and they don't, there's no free expression, there's limited free expression. So I think that we have to address with the same value and importance the relationship between the United States and governments and the relationship between the United States and Arab societies. That's a good Because point. there is now a difference. Ms. Almeina? What do you think? Well, I think there's a dichotomy, and I agree with what Dr. Fukara said. No longer is the uh, United States viewed as an example for democracy. We have seen what happened. We have seen what happened at the Capitol Hill and all, and the young Arabs are having second thoughts. And uh, some people say different strokes for different folks. I think what the Arab world needs to do, both those in power and the, the people um, the ordinary people 
uh, intellectuals, societal leaders, would be to create our own and evolve our own form of uh, government, governance, our own KPIs, rather than look up to the United States. But again, I would say that we, it does not mean that being disappointed that the United States, we will start looking elsewhere towards Russia or China, which are societies and systems that are quite abhorrent to our own way of life. Because even as a young man, when there was a Cold War was going on and the tussle between the United States and, uh, and the Soviet Union, many Americans prefer, many Saudis, Gulf people, the Arabs in particular, looked towards uh, America to migrate, those who wanted to migrate, to study like people from the Gulf. So we, we America, with respect, we like some of its uh, uh, you know, landmarks, but at the same time, we see that America itself is evolving, is becoming more violent, societies are becoming more divided. So we don't want that part of America, but yes, as Geneve said, we would like a role in, for the United States to help in societal development, to help in education, to try to help combat the new challenges that are appearing daily on the world screen from pandemics uh, to diseases, to technology, to artificial intelligence. I think in, in those areas, the Arab world needs the United States as a partner. Well, <clears throat> let's talk for a moment, if we will, on areas that we know we can cooperate on and need to. And um, you can't really do a panel without discussing COVID for a moment. What is the situation in the Middle East? Are there some nations that are as trouble as in much and in as much trouble as India with infection rates? Are there are there new variants showing up? Are you getting a handle on on the on the COVID pandemic in any way? The um, what? You know what? What is there? What is the situation? Well, uh, the situation, from what I read and hear and call people around, is not as bad as the horrors in India, which has really exceeded all levels. I mean, uh, the Arab world, by and large, has a better system. It has lesser population in India, and I just don't want to go in that. There are so many issues, ethnic issues, right. uh, communal issues, fighting, and all. But by and large, while we disapproved of some of the draconian measures taken in, uh, in certain parts of the Arab world, and here I'll speak about Saudi Arabia, the, uh, the Emirates and others, with lockdowns, uh, curfews and all, it bugs a lot of us, I mean, who are used to going in and out, but at the same time, it curtailed deaths, it stopped the spread of diseases. In other parts, as Egypt and, and North Africa and other places, while the, the pandemic is on, but yet I think the maturity shown by the people in society, by the ministries of health helped a lot. And frankly speaking, I was surprised the way the Arab uh, governments handled the pandemic. I think they did a good job. So they could get an A minus or an A uh, on that issue. Hmm. I, I, I think from, uh, you know, where I, my, my experience is that um, in terms of COVID in the Arab world, um, it's a mixed bag uh, because some countries have handled it better 
I mean, overall, especially in hindsight, and hindsight, as we know, is always 2020. Um, it looks like generally it's been handled better than a lot of us thought in the initial stages of COVID and in the initial stages of the, the, the lockdown. And, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, blame the U.S. for everything else that uh, for, every, for everything that happens elsewhere in the world. But the, the situation in the early stages of COVID inside the U.S. did have some repercussions um, for how many parts of the Arab world uh, uh, handled it. There was a lot of confusion here in, in the U.S. Uh, uh, you'll recall as to what exactly COVID was, where it was going, when it was going to end, whether people need to be vaccinated or not, who accepted to be vaccinated and who didn't. And it became very politicized. And the US did project that image, whether it wanted uh, to project it or not, to other parts of the world, including uh, uh, the, the, the Arab world. Well, do but other parts of the, did the, did the Arab, does the Arab world have a large anti-vax? Yeah, there, there, you, you hear echoes of what's happening here in, in, in the US in various uh, uh, Arab countries. I mean, in, in Morocco, for example, recently uh, the government has been trying to introduce a passport uh, without which you could not have access to certain public places like cafes and, and, and so on. And, you know, that's rubbing part of the population the, the, the wrong way. Um, in in uh, uh, Tunisia, they've they've had a terrible time uh, with the repercussions of uh, COVID, and you know those repercussions obviously translated into the politics in in Tunisia. And part of the reason why we have the current uh, conundrum in 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 Tunisia uh, is part part of that was because the issue of uh, COVID was not dealt with. Uh, 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 properly in the initial stages. So that created a lot of uh, cases and it created a lot of uh, stress on the health system and it created a lot of resentment on the part of the population that ended up supporting the, the measures taken by the, the, the president of, the, of Tunisia, Qais uh, Saeed. But, you know, to go back to the, to the, to the US, the, the, and now the US is at a point where it's thinking of using um, the, 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 the vaccines available to it to compete with the Chinese on the international stage, but also on the Arab stage. China has been very active in parts of the Arab world in terms of providing uh, vaccines to various uh, uh, Arab, uh, Arab governments. But it seems to me that the US, the Biden administration is now trying to uh, make hay, so to speak, uh, of the availability of uh, vaccines available to, to it as an administration. But the, again, you know, it, it's doing that at a time when it's facing its own problems here at, here at home. You remember Biden promised that by July, um, things would be under control. Well, July came and uh, went and things are not entirely under control. There's still no, a lot it of seems to be getting it seems to be getting worse as well that we're coming up on an, another period of, of, of surges. So the question, are there ample vaccines in the Middle East? Is the United States vaccine are the United States vaccines superior, equal or to the Chinese? 
Just, just quickly, because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let others speak. And here I come back to my original point. You know, perception is very important. It's how the U.S. is perceived. Its vaccines will be perceived, it, it seems to me. And the U.S. is generally still perceived as having a superior quality kind of uh, vaccines to offer to the Arab world. Many Arabs, at least in the parts of the Arab world that I, I hear from, when you offer them Chinese uh, vaccines, they feel a little queasy about uh, Chinese vaccines. They want uh, um, uh, American or at least they still want Western uh, vaccines. They prefer them over Chinese vaccines. And it seems to me, I, I don't know how scientifically supported that choice can be, but it seems to me that perception plays a big role in it. I know, I actually um, don't. If I could just... I was coming to you, Genevieve. Sorry. No, go okay, ahead. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, um, you know, the COVID situation is not just about what vaccine is available, but it's also, if you look at Lebanon and Egypt, for example, a lot of physicians have fled the country and nurses. Um, Egypt, I think the figure is 50,000 uh, physicians and nurses have fled the country. In Lebanon, there were just reports this week that physicians have fled the country. So have it's they fled not the, country, the problem. Have they fled the country because of the, the politics of the region, violence in the country, or have they fled no, the they, they, they have fled. No, they fled the country because of the economic crisis and because of the dysfunctional health systems. So even if vaccines are available, I mean, it's reaching the point where there is there are few people to administer them. So it's not just a matter of what vaccine is available. It's a matter of the dire health systems in some of the countries in the Middle East, not the Gulf, of course, where the health systems are much better than in countries such as Egypt, Iraq, or Lebanon. But um, many health workers have left the countries. They're seeking work elsewhere because of the conditions. So the problem is much more administering vaccine because there is, uh, you know, people there are dying because uh, there aren't health workers, people who are, are dying for many other medical reasons. Other what about variants? Are, have, there been, have there been variants of the original COVID-19 virus that are starting to show up? Yes, yes. And that's, you know, if you can imagine that we've been very taxed in the United States to even deal with these variants. Um, in the Middle East, it's much worse. And we don't even know. I mean, the other thing we need to keep in mind is that we don't really know the rate of COVID infections because there is a lot of evidence to indicate that, that governments are not really aware. They can't track the number of COVID infections. They can't track the number of deaths. Um, and so we don't really know the extent of the virus in countries like Lebanon, Iraq. Um, and so we should assume that in, even the situation is much worse than we might imagine. Wow. Um, Mr. Almayina, the, um, what do you think people on the street are thinking about when it comes to this? Are they looking to the United States to send more vaccine? Could we be uh, proactive in that? Or 
I mean, is it a is it a fearsome problem? I think it depends on which part of the Arab world you are. As Janif said, in the Gulf, which is cushioned by uh, cash flow and and revenue uh, and a better health system uh, compared to the other Arab countries, or at least some of the Arab countries, there is no cause for alarm because people are buying it. In certain parts of the Gulf, the Chinese uh, vaccines are in fashion, if I may say that. Uh, yesterday, we heard uh, or saw a Reuters report, I think, where the Chinese donated half a million vaccines to Syria. They're donating it to other countries. Uh, I don't think so there's an alarm or that people are waiting for help from the U.S. to come. Also, some of the Gulf uh, countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and others, also bought vaccine and sent them to uh, Tunisia or a million vaccines were sent by Saudi Arabia, other Gulf states, Kuwait and also. We have alleviated these causes for concern and alarm uh, as far as vaccines are concerned. But again, I think the vaccines are part of the vaccine information war between the, between the major companies, Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, rumors are floating all over. Even the media has fallen trapped, fake news is on. So the perception is not what the US can do for us, but which uh, company or which product is much more uh, important that we feel enough, uh, we feel confident enough to take it. So it's not the US per se, but it's, uh, these are the companies. And as Dr. Fakura, Fukara said, uh, the Western companies, whatever country they are, whether they're from Europe or the United States, have a one position vis-a-vis the Chinese companies. Hmm. Um, let me ask, let me go back to uh, an old relationship and the impact it has on the Arab world. Is the, are this, the close ties between the United States and Israel, does it make it difficult for these, for these new world Arab leaders to to control their their people or change the way they might think towards us? Does it hurt our, our persona there? I think the United States, which was viewed as a beacon of democracy, goodwill, which fought against uh, uh, the rising tyranny post-war, post-World War II, uh, that image is now receding because we would like to see the United States as an honest broker. The U.S., which was a signatory of uh, UN resolutions 242 and 338 calling for re- 1967 determined a two-state solution. Yes, by receding away from that platform, the U.S. now is viewed with suspicion. Now, there are some people who would say, okay, we'll go ahead. But by and large, and I talk as somebody who moves around and meeting people from all segments of society, I think it's very important for the United States to be viewed as a broker, an honest broker, and whatever the U.S. does uh, while claiming to be a great friend, unless this thorny issue of the Palestinian um, um, problem is not resolved, I do not think so. There will be any um, you know, major change, however much uh, uh, you know, we try. The other issue is also a recent issue was of Iraq, the attack on Iraq coming up the, about the situation, the weapons of mass destruction, Afghanistan. Uh, you know, you have to view what these young people say, not young and even middle-aged, say, why are we being killed? 
when people talk about debts, we all agree that any debt, be it an American debt or Arab debt or any debt, is really somebody nobody wishes for. But what we want is long-range peace. And you cannot have long-range peace without these thorny issues that have been created. Well, what, people what talk is, about... What is the solution, then, to a person's um, tr- uh, problem with our relationship with, with uh, the Palestinians? Uh, what has to happen to satisfy those people who question our... I our... think... Go ahead. I think the United States, you know, which has the clout, we think they have the clout, is to call for a two-state solution, which they agree, come up with those parties in Israel, and there are many of them, help evolve, create a real roadmap, a real roadmap, you see, not something, uh, uh, you know, phony, to come up to reach to that, so you can, the aspiring people, both sides will live in peace, and there are many Israelis also who would want that. So unless you create a conducive uh, uh, you know, atmosphere by moving the embassy to, to, for, to Jerusalem did not help, crazy statements by certain uh, American policymakers do not help. So to, in order to go forward, I think is to get both the points. Believe me, nobody wants war, nobody wants conflict. Every person would like to have to spend a peaceful night rather than wake up to guns or bombs and all. Once that is done, and the U.S. can, you know, I've talked to many people in Congress and elsewhere, but what they say in private, they cannot say in public. If they just come out and get these two people together, I think that will be the issue, and it will remove a lot of bitterness, uh, you know, about the United States. Rick, uh, if I if I may, uh, and you know, uh, allow me as, a, as an Arab to use a, a metaphor. Uh, I, I, the Arabic language is a great language because it, it, it allows for the, for the uh, unique use of metaphors. There is a well um, from which both the Arabs and the United States have been drinking for a long time. Um, and there's, in my experience, there's nothing that has poisoned um, that well as badly as two things. Um, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, um, regardless of how people felt about Saddam Hussein and the, 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 some of the very bad things that he did in the neighborhood and to his own people. Are you talking but, about the first invasion? No, I'm talking about 2003. Okay. And so uh, obviously what happened, what the U.S. did in 2003 um, caused uh, a lot of pain uh, in the the Arab world, um, particularly when uh, Arabs, other Arabs, see Iraqi normal Iraqis um, and, and, and what they've been going through since two thousand and three, their children, their old men and 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 women, and the killings and so on of civilians and so on and so forth. So that has poisoned the well. The other thing that has poisoned the well. Uh, of uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Arab relations for a long time is obviously, as 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 you've indicated, is the 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 uh, the, the Arab-Israeli conflict now reduced uh, by many Arabs uh, themselves to the appellation the Palestinian-Israeli uh, Israeli conflict. Uh, it, 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 what I what I know from the Palestinians um, uh, so far is that they are. They have, they have been very resilient uh, 
despite all the the problems that you know they've had uh, with occupation um, over the last 70 years or so, um, uh, they they've become thick-skinned. They do see now their fortunes um, or the fortunes of their cause. Uh, they've seen it change, especially since the beginning of the so-called Arab Spring, uh, where not so much attention has been paid to it. And then we've had the, the, the string of normalizations with uh, 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 Israel um, in uh, uh, recent times. Um, the moving of the U.S. Embassy to, to uh, Jerusalem, which, which surprised the reaction of Arabs to it, surprised even Trump, uh, if we take him at, at, uh, at his word. He said that the move, he expected that the move would be accompanied by huge protests across the Arab and Muslim world, and that, that, that didn't happen. However, the fact that didn't happen does not change the, the fact that you know, a solution has to be found to it. And that solution, many Palestinians, many Israelis, many Americans feel that the two-state solution that's being talking, uh, talked about is maybe not the, 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 the a viable solution uh, uh, anymore. And therefore, I expect, you know, this issue will continue to... So what is, what is a viable solution? If not a two-state solution, what is a viable solution for those people? Well, that, that's, that's what nobody at this particular point uh, uh, in time knows or wants to consider. Um, a one state, uh, one democratic state for, for Jews and, and Palestinians is obviously a, a non-starter for many Israelis. And, you know, let's, let's face it, with the, the, the power that the Israelis have both domestically and regionally, especially now with the string of normalizations, um, if the Israelis are not amenable to that, it, I, I don't see how it's, how it's gonna happen. And the Biden administration, it continues to push for a two-state solution. It, I don't see how the Biden administration or any future US administration uh, will be in a position to actually impose something that the Israelis themselves uh, do not do not want. Let me just conclude uh, by saying uh, okay, that. Okay, if I let could me, just let please let me, let me just let me just say this. Let me just say this, please. Um, you can plan politics. You can not plan history. Whether you're Israeli or American or Arab, you can plan. You can say this is what I want to happen. Uh, 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 Arab presidents, you know, planned to stay in power for a long time. In the end, they got toppled. You cannot plan history. You don't know the twists of history, what, what they're going to do to you. So I do not know what next year or the year after where the Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, moods will be when it comes to a settlement. I think we know that you can- I think it's very important to- Sorry. Go ahead. Um, I'd just like to say that it's very important that the U.S. continue to pursue a two-state solution, irrespective of which faction or coalition is in power in Israel. And I think it's important not to generalize Israeli public opinion, because there's a large part of Israeli public opinion, in fact, that does still advocate a two-state solution. The, the other point I'd like to make is that if you look historically over the last 30 years, a lot of Arab societies have never really 
cared that much about the Palestinian cause, as tragic as it might seem. I mean, uh, when I was on the streets in Cairo in the 1990s, the only time Egyptians ever talked about the Palestinian cause was as a, as a, as a way to demonstrate on the streets against Mubarak. So um, this is not a new, a new development. I mean, the Palestinian cause is a tired complaint among a lot of Arab societies, and it's never really had importance. And so to say now that, well, it doesn't have importance and therefore we have to we have to resign ourselves to a one-state solution is really a misleading kind of assumption. And so I think it's very important that the United States pursue a two-state solution, and it's not correct to try to evaluate Israeli public opinion based upon the manipulations of Israeli politicians. Um, I think also uh, if the United States gives up on a two-state solution, that that would be a very tragic development in the Middle East. And those Arabs who do care about the Palestinian cause would definitely use this as ammunition against the United States. And let's not forget that this has been a very important cause. If it's not been one for uh, average Arabs, it's certainly been a cause that has been um, instrumentalized by extremist groups. So it's not, I think it's very um, uh, much a mistake to uh, try to argue that the United States needs to give up on a two-state solution simply because that might be what the Israeli political elites want. Uh, Genevieve, I, I agree with your precautions. Um, I'm not making any uh, um, uh, pronouncement uh, or statement on whether the two-state solution is still viable or, or, or not, or whether a one-state solution is the way forward. I, I don't know, but I, I know one thing. Um, I was in the West Bank. Um, uh, uh, I have been in the West Bank uh, in, in the past and traveling around the West Bank, watching uh, the construction of settlements, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it was obvious, at least to me personally, and, you know, I, I, I could be completely wrong, but it was obvious to me that with that kind of scale of settlement building, it is becoming increasingly difficult to see how a two-state uh, solution um, could actually come about. But let me just end by reiterating what I said at the end of my last uh, uh, of my remarks last time, which is that you can plan politics, but you cannot plan history. Um, you know, the Biden administration could plan to continue with the two-state solution drive. A future administration could have uh, uh, something different to, to offer, I, I don't know. But ultimately, you know, control over history, and I hope I'm not sounding too philosophical, control of history is neither in the hands of Israelis, Palestinians, Americans, or anybody else. We don't know what history will uh, bring ultimately to, to, to this issue. But just judging on the facts as I've experienced them uh, myself, with the level of, with the scale of the settlement, it seems to me that the two-state solution is really having a hard time coming into being. But nobody of import, it seems, really thinks that a one-state solution can solve any problems, that you couldn't get a buy-off. You, you know, you're not going to get the Palestinians to buy on to that. Well, they might... The Palestinians may buy onto it, the Israelis may buy onto it, but 
the details would be devastating. I mean, I, I, I don't have any, any figures. Genevieve just talked about the Israelis. I don't have any, any figures to support this. I get a sense that, you know, obviously the Israeli political spectrum is a very rich spectrum, but I don't know if, if there is a strong enough a majority of Israelis who uh, uh, would who who favor a one-state solution. I don't believe there are enough American Jews who favor a one-state solution because they see it as a as a threat to the future of 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 Israel, and therefore this big question mark as to what the, this administration will achieve with its drive for a two-state solution will lead to. I don't know what the next administration uh, will do. It's a big question mark for me. But with the change in government in Israel, with Netanyahu out or the hardliner out, um, do you see this as something that might help negotiations, that might help the situation? Genevieve, Mr. Mike? Um, I think that I think that one point to understand is, you know, that the whole strategy of Israel, whether it's been under Netanyahu or otherwise, has been to change the facts on the ground. And when you talk about settlement building, yes, I mean, that's a perfect example of changing the facts on the ground. So if we succumb to the Israeli strategy, which has been employed at least for a decade of changing the facts on the ground, then we're basically saying, okay, we're helpless, we can't do anything, we'll allow more settlement building, um, because that's a fait accompli. And so I think that we have to talk about the causes of how we got to this point, um, rather than just accepting the situation as it exists now. So I think that policy needs to consider how we got to this point, who is responsible, um, how the Palestinians have been affected by, these, by the creation of these facts on the ground. Um, as the settlement building has gone on, I mean, the United States government has not really done all that much to stop it. And so um, I think that has to be considered as well as a whole complex of issues that have affected the Palestinians because, frankly, the international community has, has not tried to take the kinds of action necessary to stop these kinds of facts on the ground. Hmm. Well, well, if I may add, I think we I forgot one of the main actors. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, we might also not overlook the resilience of the Palestinians. The Palestinians have been, you know, unfortunate, the leadership, there has to be a sea change in the leadership Younger people should come in who are eloquent, who can speak out their minds. There are people who can follow the Gandhian philosophy of nonviolence, uh, do up things in the West Bank. Also, let's not forget the, the intra-Palestinian conflict between Gaza and the West Bank, the political conflict. I think there has to be a total Palestinian solution so that it can come up at par and sit across the table with those like-minded Israelis who would like to have peace, because I agree a one-state solution would, is, is absolutely out of the question, because in the long range, it will cause more problems. I truly believe a two-state solution based on equal rights and secure borders, but these are not just words, but I think that there should be a total change, and it's not for me to say that, younger Palestinian voices, more eloquent, more professional, 
more political savvy should be able to come and speak out rather than these, those voices that we have been hearing from for decades. Who, um, if I was going to go negotiate today, um, who is the negotiating power on the Palestinian side and do they have real influence? Well, there are many. I mean, there are people like Ramzi Baroud, who's outside. There are other people inside. I've heard of a couple of them who are living in the States, not necessarily those with, within the borders of Palestine or Israel. They can get a lot of the professional Palestinians who are living in the United States and Canada and in, in Australia. And there are a lot of them who would come and talk over and be able to and get the support of the masses because People are really tired. We meet a lot of Palestinians outside and they're just tired of the same faces, the same statements and, and, and some of the corruption that goes on. So the new faces are there. And, and I'm sure at the drop of a hat, they'll be coming up and are ready to come and serve their people. Um, I think we're starting to approach the end of this session. Um, nobody has told me otherwise. The, um, Dr. Anthony, is there a thought you would like to make? Um, uh, thank you, uh, Rick. Um, this would be a question uh, having to do with uh, monetary influence on uh, Arab media. Uh, it's a consensus, it seems, you can correct me if I'm in error, uh, that the overwhelming majority of the income for publications, print, broadcast, media, and otherwise, comes not from subscribers or individual viewers as, as much as it comes from advertisers. And advertisers have no restraints or constraints in terms of uh, holding or withholding their advertising uh, contributions uh, to the financial viability of uh, media. Uh, would any of the resource specialists focus on this dynamic? What is similar, if at all, and what is different? And if different, how profoundly different? And what are the implications of the flow of revenue income to the media that is centerfold in terms of what people have in the way of information and insight and such knowledge and understanding as passes for conventional wisdom. And let's also ask our panelists to uh, conclude, make some concluding remarks. Yes. So why don't we begin um, with, the, with the lady? Why don't we begin with Genevieve? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting discussion. Um, my only comment is that I think that the United States will all be, always be engaged in the Middle East in some form or another. And it probably is not an either or situation. Um, will the United States become more engaged in China? And therefore, will it make it less engaged in the Middle East? I think that the relationship historically has uh, cemented some involvement. And I think that Arabs look to the United States for a lot of things, um, not just occupation and military um, presence, but they look to the United States culturally. Um, they look to the United States for 
um, visionary purposes. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind rather than to create this sort of dichotomy of the United States will become more involved in China or elsewhere and therefore less engaged in the Middle East, because I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Hey, uh, Mr. I agree. Oh, sorry. You go next. Uh, well, I think, as, as was said, I think the United States and the Arab world uh, should have a strong relationship and they should now focus rather than just be we buyers of arms and others, we should focus on technology yes. and to face these new challenges that are fast creeping up, to rehab the Arab educational system, to raise the standard of awareness health-wise, societal-wise, and other ways. This is very important. The United States can play a big role, but it's not the only place. Now, the Arab world is also looking towards the Far East, uh, towards Japan, Korea, and all, which has a sort of decent type of technology and scientific uh, breakthroughs. So I think, yes, we have an emotional attachment. Many Arabs have studied in the United States. They like the United States. But as I said earlier, we should have to deal with a country that we feel comfortably with and not have this dichotomy between politics and a society. So there should be a sympathetic view of the Arabs. The Islamophobia in the United States, you stop. The hatred, you talk, uh, John Dukes talked about media. When I'm appalled when I read the US media and respectable papers down there say such, and I'm a media man myself, outright lies. So I think there should be a meeting of the minds between the American intelligentsia and the Arab intelligentsia and guilds should meet with guilds, associations with associations, and we create a conducive climate of peace and understanding that we are in this fight against the environmental damages, against other things together. I think that would be the key issue that we should face when we deal with the United States. Okay, and Dr. Bakara, we end with you, and it's the end of the session, so briefly, please. Uh, you're not going to hear anything fundamentally different from me. I agree the U.S. can walk and chew gum. It can focus on China and continue its engagement uh, in the Middle East. And by the way, when we say the Middle East, we don't mean just the Arabs. There are the Iranians, the Persians, there are the Israelis, there are the Turks, there are uh, uh, other 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 groups and th there's a, a third thing that has poisoned the well of uh, us arab uh, relations uh, obviously and that's the 911 attacks um the uh, issue of withdrawing from afghanistan you know harks back to to that and for that alone um the the united states will not be able to completely disengage not that any american is thinking of completely disengaging from the Middle East, but the, 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 the Middle East and the United States, um, it seems to me, are destined to continue uh, their relationship. That relationship has, as we heard from uh, Mr. Khalid earlier, that relationship has to be recalibrated uh, here and there, but the U.S. can definitely walk and chew gum at the same time. All right, so I think we need to leave it there. And with that, I thank you all very much for taking part. And Dr. Anthony, the ball is yours. Thank you, sir. Um, it's been an excellent discussion. And I think um, you have put uh, the dynamic and phenomenon, the force, the factor of China 
uh, in a much more uh, relevant, timely, and understandable uh, context. Uh, this relationship between the United States and the Arab region, uh, at least seven decades and counting. Uh, the one with China is, is new, uh, far less deep, not nearly as high, uh, hardly as, as broad, uh, and as diverse and rich. Um, there are just in the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf region, uh, at one million uh, Arab graduates of American institutions of higher education. And as Khaled Al-Mayina rightly said, there is this positive bias, for lack of a better word, or rather emotional attachment by these graduates who came to the United States, lived here firsthand, Thanksgiving, Christmases, other holidays, at the most impressionable stage in their lives, 16 to 23 or something like that. There is no remotely comparable phenomenon uh, present, let alone having influence uh, coming from Moscow or elsewhere in the Soviet Union or Russia or, or China, nor is there likely to be in the foreseeable future for all of us involved in this session. Uh, on matters of, of war and peace, of, of strategic might, of the ability to uh, dispatch for humanitarian crises, tsunamis and earthquakes and others, uh, uh, Russia and China have no experience like that and uh, no uh, remotely capable or comparable capacity uh, to perform such feats. So it's not just the military by any means. On the economic front, uh, yes, China is the fast moving train on the inside lane, uh, uh, so to speak. But if these figures are reasonably correct, that the United States uh, annual GDP somewhere $21 trillion, China's is uh, uh, something like 18. So that's a spread of $3 trillion annually between the two. So yes, catching up, but, but nowhere near, uh, and nowhere near to be nearly in sight. Uh, secondly, with regard to trade, investment, and uh, commerce, business in general, um, um, most of the joint ventures in the capital area, public and private, sector uh, between Arab companies, corporations, institutions, and their American counterparts, not their Chinese or Russian uh, counterparts there. On the military aspects of 42% of all of the uh, uh, arms exports uh, to the entire Arab region from Morocco uh, to Muscat, Baghdad to Berber, Algiers to Aden and Alexandria and Aleppo, in between are American manufactured by four or five uh, major US Fortune 100 uh, companies. Uh, there's no even distant faint whisper or echo of that kind of effectiveness uh, coming from Russia or from China, even though uh, France and Great Britain, of course, uh, uh, remain active in this area as well. Uh, but China does not seek, to my knowledge, uh, to become the military hegemon uh, in the region, uh, to be an increasingly important, dynamic, beneficial, reciprocally rewarded economic partner, yes, but that's completely different uh, from, the, from the other. 
uh, China would more likely, in my view, correct me if I'm wrong, be seen as, a, as an ascendant player and a participant and an activist and an engager, uh, but not a threat, not an adversary, uh, not a country to be uh, over-criticized in terms of what it is doing and not doing in the region that affects not just the people in the region, uh, but the United States in particular and the uh, global uh, situation uh, as a whole. Um, so I will uh, let the, these concluding remarks rest on their, on their merits or and, and by challenge or corrections or uh, comment and input from many of our resource specialists. This has been an extraordinary team of professionals uh, who have called out time from their busy schedules uh, to exhibit, manifest their convictions and display their commitments. Uh, many of us have innumerable convictions, but uh, we must limit, prioritize their commitments. And look what these four have done for the past hour and their commitment to enhance American awareness, appreciation and understanding on one hand and Arab understanding, awareness and appreciation on the other of the opportunities, the achievements, the accomplishments, the complexities, uh, and the issues at hand uh, that beg for greater insight, knowledge, and understanding. You've helped us all come closer to achieving that objective. And accordingly, we end your debt. Thank you all. <laughs>